You're listening to the Maximum Advisor Podcast, a show that empowers financial advisors to set goals, take action, and grow their practice. Your host, Chip Munn, is an award-winning advisor and CEO whose advice is regularly featured in Business Insider, Thrive Global, and The Streets Retirement Daily. Listen in as he sits down with industry experts to talk about building a practice and making an impact. Welcome back to Maximum Advisor. I'm your host, Chip Munn, and today I'm joined by Adam Schmela. Adam is the founder of Integrated Planning and Wealth Management. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chip. I appreciate it and looking forward to uh, today's conversation. Me too. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. We've met each other through a, a Facebook group, and I'm really fascinated not only by where you ended up, but how you got there. Tell us a little bit about your story. Yeah, so the Cliffstones version, let's see, we're coming up on 14 years in the advisory business, three different business models, started out in the brokerage model, then spent five years at an independent broker dealer, and then launched my own RIA back in, I think it was late 2016. I think we officially launched in March of 2017. And I have always embraced financial planning first as the method and the model of how we serve clients. And then complement that with the investment advisory services and the solutions that support the financial plan. Initially started out by, I think the way a lot of advisors start out, right? Do you have a pulse? Great. You can become a client. But as I learned so affectionately in the early business, the spray and pray model of just like spray everything everywhere, see who I can chase down. Maybe that's an excessive way to say it, but it, it really was that. I mean, I was networking I was drinking, I joke with people, I was drinking more coffee and more beer than any one person should in any given week because I was networking every possible way that I could. Because when I started back in this business in April of 2008, great time to start in the business, by the way. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but it actually was a really, really good time. When I was going through that, I didn't have clarity as to who I was going to work with. And so in the absence of clarity, you go to that lowest common denominator, which inevitably you just wanted to find people that had money, which is what every other advisor is trying to do. And so I networked because I wasn't, when I started the business, I wasn't from the area. My wife and I had moved from Wisconsin down to Indiana after graduating from undergrad. And then she went to optometry school at IU. And so I didn't have a significant relationship with anybody in about a six hour radius from a drive standpoint. So it was network and try and work with everybody. And I came what Dr. Tom Stanley calls affectionately the master of the ones. And I had a client in this profession. I had a client in this profession. One week I'd start working with a 25 year old and the next week I'd work with a 72 year old. And I created this functionally dysfunctional practice, transitioned that through a couple of different business models. And then finally, in working with my coach, she brought something up with me that has always stuck with me, which was, I realized that there was a disconnect between the conditions of the practice that I wanted to have versus the conditions of how I was showing up in the practice. And I knew that you keep doing the same thing over and over and you think that you're going to get different results, right? And the Einstein variation or version of that is no problem can be solved with the same consciousness that created it. And so in 2018, we went through a massive overhaul, massive rebrand and decided to, as I so eloquently say, we, we burn the ships on who we work with. And now I'm very confident to say that we do not work with about 99.8% of the general public. 
it's fascinating that you say that because I, I think there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast like you and I. So I got into business in 98, which was an equally good and bad time. <laughs> right. right. On the other side of the, the crash. I, <laughs> I, I normally joke that uh, I had been in business just long enough to have some experience, but not long enough to have anybody that was pissed off at me when the dot-com bubble busted, <laughs> in which way it's a great time. But the thing that my manager told me when he hired me was, I'm going to give you a book to build your business off of. And it was a phone book. You know, he just handed it to you and said, good luck, go back there. And it was very much that mirror test. And I think that there are a lot of folks who are in a place where you were maybe a couple of years ago. And so I'm going to ask you to tell us who it is that you serve now and really kind of how you dialed in on that. But I think it's also important to, as you do that, if you would, share with us why you finally made that change. Because I know, having been in business, you know, 22 plus years, I know that it's something that we talk about in my practice all the time and that I talk about with other advisors in our company, and it's hard. So I know that that wasn't an easy decision. So when you look at where you are now, who is it that you work with and how did you finally bite the bullet to make that decision? Because I know it wasn't easy. So I do my best work with optometrists that are private practice owners that are within five years of selling their practice to a private equity firm. So I will challenge a listener to find a more specific niche than that. I have yet to find an advisor. And if you find a listener that tries to play the competition card and like finds a greater niche, a more specific niche, please connect me because I'd like to iron sharpens iron, right? So I'd love to learn from another advisor that has that same type of intensive focus. But you're right. I do my best work with optometrists that own their own practice that are within five years of selling their private practice to a private equity group. Now, that is not what I set out to create. My initial reversion or my initial version of this methodology of burning the ships and only working with optometrists started with just that. It started with, I want to work with optometrists. And really, Chip, it came down to understanding a mindset shift of going from a scarcity to an abundance factor. And what that meant for me was, like, and this is going to sound so, dare I say, condescending and not accusatory, but just like harsh to listeners, but do the math on your practice, right? Do the math on any advisory practice. Assuming you're doing great work and you're charging appropriately for the value in the work that you're doing, I think we can all agree, you and I can agree that a single advisor can serve, let's call it 100 households plus or minus 25, maybe 50, again, depending on the type of client and the thing. So 100 households, okay? There are approximately 38,000 optometrists nationwide. Do I think when I do the math on the business model and I do the math on what I can do for and with them, do I think I can find 100 relationships nationwide, mind you, out of a pool of 38,000? And when I distilled it down into that math, it was like, well, you idiot, you better be able to find 100 or I'd seriously question my ability as an advisor, right? And I think that's the biggest mistake that I find with advisors that operate from the scarcity mentality of, oh my gosh, I can't create a niche because then I'll say no to the people that I might be able to serve. And they say it with a very well-intentioned, altruistic mindset of being a servant. And that's fine. That's awesome. That's why we're in this business to do good work for good people and help align their intentions with their actions. But the question, semi-rhetorical that I would ask to the listener is at the cost of what? And so when I think about the idea of going into a niche and starting with the first version of that of working with optometrists and doing the math and realize at X fee schedule, I work with Y number of households. If I can get to 50 optometrists at the time, right at that time, 
I would have a great practice and I'd be happy and I'd be content. And that 50 has turned into 75 and it's turned into 85 and it's going up from there, right? Where my biggest problem right now is I have more growth than I know what to do with. What I have found, there's been an interesting, I got to figure out how to coin this because like there's an interesting paradox that I've noticed happens from a niche standpoint. The narrower you take your focus, the more frequent and the bigger opportunities are finding me. And notice I said finding me, like I'm going from chasing to attracting. It's a roundabout way for me to answer your question, Chip, because I didn't set out with this laser focus. I started out by realizing that there's a pool of 38,000 plus or minus optometrists and that I only needed at the time 50-ish to build a really good practice. And then it was the ready, fire, aim approach. It was, okay, let's do this. Let's execute on this. Mind you, I still had a practice, right? I didn't fire all my clients. I didn't say, I didn't go through my client roster because I had a handful of optometrists at that time. And I didn't go through my client base and say, if you don't have OD after your name, find another home, right? That's not what I did. We still serve those clients. I'm so grateful for the opportunity and the privilege of serving them because candidly, they have been the bridge to get up until this point. So I'm just being very selective in who I let on the arc from this point forward, where if you're not an OD that owns your own practice and in that situation, then you can still work with us, but you're not going to work with me. You're going to work with someone else on the team. Or if you're truly not the best fit for us, I'll have advisors challenge me on this all the time. Well, Adam, so you're saying a 40-year-old that worked at Airbnb that was the cousin of one of your optometrists, that OD referred you to the nephew that worked at Airbnb and they just have $4 million from the IPO. You're saying you wouldn't work with them? like, probably not. No, for two reasons. Number one, I'm not that person. I'm not an executive stock option. I'm not an ISO and RSU type advisor. Do I know about them? Yes. Was it covered in the CFP? Yes, of course it was. But Meg Bartlett, with Flow Financial is probably a lot better served to do that because guess who Meg works with? Meg works with people in the tech sector that are compensated through executive stock options. And number two, this is the other thing that advisors miss in this equation is every new person that I bring into the practice is taking up a seat on the bus, right? And we all know that clients bring different types of equity to the practice. The lowest version of equity that advisors think of is revenue equity, right? In exchange for X numbers of dollars in AUM or X numbers of dollars in planning fees, my income, my practice's revenue is going to go up by Y. But what other advisors miss are the other forms of equity that a client brings to the table. It's the relationship equity. It's the referral equity. It's the professional equity. Because guess who the optometrists that are within five years of selling their practice, guess who else they hang out with? Guess who their friends are? Guess who they network with at existing conferences when we go to conferences, right? Post-COVID and pre-COVID. Like, so if I take up that seat on the bus or if I let someone else that is not in that position take up a seat on that bus, I've now filled that seat with someone that is only going to bring one dimension of equity to the practice. It's the same thing from a calorie standpoint, right? If I have 100 calories and I eat 100 calories of Sour Patch Kids, my vice, by the way, or I eat 100 calories of a very healthy salad, yes, quantitatively, I consumed hundred calories of each, but what one's going to be better for me long-term. So as I kept going through this process of being reflective as to the work that we were doing in the optometry space, and the more reps I got in working with these ODs and the more knowledgeable I became about the challenges that they have and the, the solutions that I can bring to the table to help them solve these challenges, I started to realize that, wow, there's a lot of opportunity here. And so I just kept finding myself being introduced into more and more complex cases. And the byproduct of that has been introductions and national relationships with other COIs that have led to the biggest challenge in our firm right now, which is keeping up with growth, which I know 
I don't say that to impress you, Chip. I say that to impress upon you the importance of having a niche, right? <laughs> nice. I want to touch and kind of press on that for a minute because I'm hopeful if this is your first time on the show and you heard Adam say that, I interviewed Meg Bartelt, who actually works with women in tech. When you said, I challenged somebody to find, she's as close as there is. And then at one point, Dave Grant and teachers. Yep. But you're three of the people that I know and have talked to. Meg has a waiting list. She's literally consistently telling people no. And I can't imagine most advisors would love to have that problem. And so I point that out only to say that you're another example of that. I know that you're not saying it just to say it because there are other people who are doing it too. And the people that I've talked to that are having that problem, right? First world problem kind of thing are people who have, I'm looking at your website now, says helping optometrists plan life on purpose right there at the top of the website. There's no question who it is that you work with. I think it's also interesting though, to point out that what you said that you didn't up and fire the people who had helped get you here. How did you have that conversation? So I've been with you for five or six years and I'm a retiree from XYZ company, but now you're helping optometrists. How did you have that conversation? Because I could see that being something that, that folks would want to know. I'm really glad you bring that up because it was one of the mistakes that I made when I made this pivot. Well, first of all, the vast majority of clients, when I was talking to them, and like it's no secret, right? To your point, the website looked at my LinkedIn profile. The surprising thing that happened, the response was, wow, that's really awesome. We're really happy for you, Adam. Just don't forget about us. And so my mistake in that it cost me one relationship. I lost one client from it. Or when I launched the podcast, I have a podcast called 2020 Money. When I launched the podcast, I don't remember exactly how they saw the podcast or how they found it. But the way I found out that they were, I got the, the dreaded ACAT out notice from TD Ameritrade. And it was a decent account. I think they were six or $700,000 in AUM, a decent relationship. And I called them when I saw it's like, help me understand what, what happened here. I'm just trying to learn. I mean, I understand I'm not going to try and save you. I'm just trying to learn from what happened here. And they said, well, we saw the podcast and we just don't think that you're the best fit for us anymore. And so what's the phrase in business? In the absence of you setting the expectation, someone else will. And so what I did not do is I didn't proactively script out a communication strategy for our existing clients that says, this is what we're doing. Now, again, not to pat myself on the back, but, and I think a lot of other advisors feel the same way. I have great relationships with my clients. We have a great rapport. There's a lot of trust there. Dare I say, I took that for granted. And I should have communicated effectively and proactively and that it's not going to come at the compromise of existing service to them, that it can be an and experience. It doesn't have to be, we either serve you or we serve optometrists. So that's the lesson that I learned that any advisor that is going to do that, and I have to give credit to my office manager, to Kathy, when we were talking about molding out the service model for optometrists, I was stuck on this idea of, well, gosh, we keep these existing clients and now I have two different service models. I'm doing the service model for optometrists and practice owners. And then we have our existing clients that aren't optometrists. And I feel like an idiot that like, it's a Captain Obvious statement after she smacked me proverbially upside the head with this statement. She's like, well, Adam, what happens when they sell their practice? Aren't they, quote unquote, just like one of your other clients? I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess they are. So it's it, like to do what I'm talking about here, to tie a bow around the conversation, 
for advisors listening, you don't have to burn the ships and fire all of your clients to go all in on the niche. It can be an and equation. Well, first off, talking about your office manager, it's hard to read the label sometimes from inside the jar. And I think that you mentioned having a coach. That's one of the things that for me has always been official is having someone else to look at things from the outside and point out things that are obvious to them. But for me, again, being inside the jar, I can't tell. You know, I'm a big proponent in kind of my methodology. One of the areas is to attract, right? And it's to attract the right kind of client. And for me, I don't normally talk necessarily specifically about niches, but I do talk about identifying one target market, at least at a time, because then you can have a service model. So for you, I'm curious how has it helped you to have defined that? I would also say, before I forget, that the truth is they were probably right, right? They probably weren't the ideal fit for you going forward. When you say, well, I guess I'm not trying to save you, but I do want to learn. The reality is, right, if we're being honest, that they weren't a right fit client going forward necessarily. And it did, to some extent, free up a seat down the road. It doesn't make it any more pleasant in the moment. <laughs> but in reality, maybe it saved you an uncomfortable conversation of some sort later. So I'm glad you bring that up, Chip. And, and I want to tie that question and that statement together here. So the question of the niche, and mind you, the iteration of working with optometrists I had a niche of white coats before that. Like I thought that I was going to work with optometrists, dentists, pharmacists, and physicians. The podcast 2020 Money originally started out. In fact, when you go to our website and if you look at the Libsyn file track in our podcast, the, the podcast was originally called A Dose of Financial Sense because I wanted to create content that was going to be what I considered to be specifically generic, right? It was going to be specific enough to white coats, but it was going to be generic enough to appeal to all different four of those professions. And it took me, I think, maybe four or five episodes before I realized that, oh, this sucks. Because as soon as I start talking about from an example of, well, this dentist is how they did it. Like in my mind, I was just like, oh, I'm just alienating every pharmacist that is listening that works with CBS. I just alienated them from this podcast. They're not going to be interested. And from a content standpoint, I think you and I can both agree that here's some alliteration for you from a listener standpoint. In content creation, consistency is key. And so I wanted to make sure that the content that I was creating was consistently relevant and timely and applicable to my audience. The narrower I took the avatar of my listener, the easier it was to create content. You should see my content calendar right now. You and I are recording this during my podcast production week. I will do 16 episodes. I think we're at 16 episodes this week. I technically won't have to think about my podcast until mid-June by the time I'm done with this week. And I have enough content to take me into the beginning of next year. And guess where I source all that content? From conversations that I'm having with prospects, from conversations that I'm having presenting at Vision Expo, from conversations that I have with clients, right? I never run out of content. And the interesting thing is that the more specific that I become with the content, the more it attracts that same type of individual out there. Now, and this illustrates why I would actually push back on your statement about that person wasn't the right fit for the practice. What I mean by that is my value proposition in part to a prospect is if they're already working with an advisor, I subscribe to the notion that most successful clients or prospects, in order for me to get hired, someone else is going to have to get fired. And so what I've 
for lack of a better word, what I pitch to prospects when I'm having a triage conversation with them. That's our word for discovery, right? What did optometrists do? They triage a patient before they come in to see if they're the best fit, right? So all into the marketing, all into the message. So when I have a conversation with a prospect in a triage call and they're already working with someone, I'll say, Dr. Prospect, what makes us different is that what your current advisor says as world-class planning is table stakes for us in our firm. What makes us valuable and what makes us valuable to potentially you and every OD that we serve around the country is that we know what questions to ask you that neither you nor your current advisor know to ask because we know the business and the profession of optometry so well. Now, that works really, really good from a marketing and a plan design standpoint. But back to what my practice manager so eloquently and and graciously knocked me upside the head with, once they sell their practice and they're quote unquote, just a retiree with a portfolio and income stream, they're no different than that client that left. So the benefit from a niche marketing standpoint, specifically from a professional point of view, is that not only does it streamline the marketing side of things, because now I only have to be a master of one instead of a master of the ones, plural, not only does it fix that, but the planning process, the ongoing planning process is the same. And it just spills downstream from there, right? Once they sell their practice, all of that other stuff that we're doing on the practice side of things in collaboration with their other advisors is gone. And so they are, quote unquote, just another retiree. But the relationship equity and the longevity of the work that we did, the proof's in the pudding. So they're not going anywhere. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that for listeners, that gives hope, right? That that all of a sudden, I can decide, really, and I want to be clear, your point about communication is key here. Because having a communication plan for a change like that you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so one of the things I'd compliment you on is the idea of, and, and I think that your strategy is a long game strategy, 100%. right? If I could get 100 out of 38,000, that's not saying I have to get them all tomorrow. And I think that the philosophy that we maybe started under of anybody who could breathe a mirror is a short-term strategy. You know, back then, could I find somebody who wanted to buy some B shares when those were a thing? But we encourage people, I think you and I both, to build a business and one that is going to take some time, perhaps, to get to where it is that you want to be. But what you said for me gives people hope, which is, all right, I have a service model for how I take care of existing clients. From now on, at least for now, right? Because you could start down a road and decide you don't want to do dentist, you want to do optometrist. Then for now, I can begin by saying from here on, I'm going to build out something for, we have a guy in our company that wants to work with coaches, coaches and athletic directors, people in collegiate sports. Awesome. From now on, you build out something for that. And that's what you've already got your ongoing service scheduled to your point. So for folks listening, if you have a group inside your practice that you enjoy working with, if you've been doing this for a while, you have an idea. Your website says you're married to optometry, you know, and and from your story, I understand that now. But for other people, if you've been in practice for five years, you know who you like and who you don't like. It may be hard to admit it. It may be scary to try to do something about it because your biggest client is intimidating because they really care more about it. Now I'm telling my story, right? Because they care more (laughs) about the investment management and you're more planning oriented. And so you know who it is and what it is that you like and what you enjoy. 
from here forward, you can decide to do differently and to pick a target market. And what I heard you say, Adam, was, and this is, again, I think fascinating, is that all of a sudden everything else gets easier. I've told a couple of advisors and, and friends of mine that I've, and I've had this conversation or just in passing, we've had niche-based conversations. I'm the guy with the niche now. I'm getting that reputation, I guess, around the profession. And given where things are at right now, I have 10 triage calls next week alone, 14 over the next two weeks. Just like Meg, we have a waiting list at the rate that we're going. We will bring on approximately 36 relationships this year that will add roughly, based off average revenue per client, between 350 and 400,000 in revenue per year. So really, really good problem to have. If you told me that this niche went away and that I had to go back to being a generalist, I would be very seriously considering selling my practice and getting out of the profession. I can't even dream about going back to working with, I work with pre-retirees, period. I would say I work with retirees that are within three years of retirement that work for XYZ company. There's a friend of mine out in Northwest that works with executives at two different companies where more than 50% of their compensation is through stock options and, and executive level compensation. There's no way that I would go back to being a generalist. That sounds horrible. And again, I, I don't want that to sound like derogatory towards advisors that haven't made this fate. My hope is that by me saying that, you take that leap of faith to go from having the courage to do it and then building the confidence to see that once you do it and it works, it becomes your fly. Well, and courage is key. Yeah. That you have to have that courage. I think it's Dan Sullivan that talks about the four C's, and I can't quote them all off the top of my head, but the first one is courage. You got to have the courage to do it, or maybe it's commitment, one of the two, but you, you have to have the commitment to get the courage to move into the other two. You just kind of have to do it before you feel it. Yeah. There's enough proof out there for folks who are looking that they don't have to take our word for it. No. But I will tell you, I had a similar conversation because of how our practice has kind of grown and expanded. I've started doing some coaching and I saw a post on a message board the other day that said, why is it that I'm getting spammed by some guy who can run a $200 million practice? If he can run a $200 million practice, why is he spamming my email or my LinkedIn? And first, spamming is bad all the way around. Just completely stupid. I don't care who you are. But the fact is, I'm one of those people that I've reached a certain point where going back to regular day-in, day-out financial planning practice stuff, I love and I deal with all the clients that I currently have. And I don't ever want to not be an advisor in that way. But it's also not what I want to grow from here yeah. into. It, it just becomes a situation where, and again, anybody who's listening can start from today, from hearing us having this conversation and say, from now on, I'm going to. And so, again, the beauty of being in this business is that nobody, unless you've got a manager in a wirehouse, and that's a whole different conversation because you and I have both been through some of that, nobody can tell you how to build your business. And so... Outside of the voice in your head. That's right. Which can be one of the biggest constraints that you'll ever face if you don't tame it. No question. Adam, how do you get new clients? I mean, you said you've uh, headed towards or got a waiting list. Where do they come from? So we track this internally. So every client or every potential relationship that schedules a triage call, when they schedule on our website, we use Acuity for our online scheduling. By the way, one of the few pieces of software that if they 10x my fee, I wouldn't even blink. 
any type of scheduling software is a phenomenal investment in your practice for multiple different reasons, hold another conversation. But we track that, we find out where they came from and they're coming from one of three places, either the podcast, 2020 Money, which is the name of the podcast, right? The publications that I write for, the optometry publications. So I have standing columns in a couple of national publications, national optometry publications. And then I am a frequent contributor and subject matter expert, I guess you could say, in an online Facebook group called Odie's on Finance. And so there's 10,000 optometrists in that Odie's on Finance Facebook group. And it's, again, a mindset shift of give away as much of the information as you can. The newsflash to advisors listening, the information that you know is not the value that you provide to your clients or to your prospects. All of that has been commoditized with Google. So if you think that, oh, I don't want to write, I don't want to give away my information. Ever heard of a guy by the name of Michael Kitsis and ever read the work that he's done? And you talk about giving away in the empire, dare I say, that he's built? The same thing can be true for everything. So giving away all of this content, we have created this content creation machine and it's that kind of three-legged bar stool. As of now, that's what's generating all of the traction is the podcast, the writing, and the finance group. There's referrals, right? I speak at national optometry events and I frequent some of the state Congress meetings. The organized optometry meeting, Indiana Optometric Association was just out in West Virginia a month or so ago for their annual Congress. So like I'm doing those as well, but predominantly it's those three mediums where they are attracted to the work that we're doing. I'm not having to prospect anymore, which is a very weird feeling to me, by the way. But in a way you do, right? I talk a lot about marketing being either a slot machine or a vending machine. Yeah. And one of the reasons that a lot of advisors don't want to do any marketing is because it feels like a slot machine. Sometimes if I pull the arm, you know, my money just disappears and other times, and I never know what it seems to me like is you've created more of what I would call a vending machine where I know that if I do these things, I'm going to press A4 and get a bag of chips. Yep. This is, I know what's going to predictably happen. If you don't mind my asking, do you pay to write in the publications? Is it an nope. advertorial or? Nope. And, and so I wanted to point that out. That's another, because for me, I did a lot of writing last year and got two standing monthly contributorships to things that I don't even pay for. Do you mind if we kind of dive down that path and share how I did that? I want to make sure that no, we're, okay. Okay. So here's what you don't do. Don't find a national publication and say, Hey, I'd like to write a column question mark, wait for a response. You could, but I think that's more of the slot machine approach. I love that metaphor, by the way, Chip. That's great. I might benchmark that full credit due. <laughs> Fair enough. The way that I did it, which worked on the first try was I did that. I said, I'd like to write a column. I'm wondering if you're interested for a column. Here are three sample articles on topics that I'd like to write for your publication. I understand that your average article length on the previous issues of the publication, the average article length is between 800 and 1100 words. I also understand based off the previous publication and some of the practice management columns that you're very analytical in the topics. So I've included said charts to back up and tables to back up, serve it to them on a silver platter so that they can understand and make a decision around the content that you're going to create. And not just an open, cold solicitation without them having any frame of reference as to what they're going to benefit by saying yes to you. Again, the same premise. Give away the farm. Give them the information that they need to make an educated and informed decision as to whether or not you can provide value to their readership. So that's what I did. I read their publication. I understood the article length. I included three sample articles. I forget what the articles were. But 
here's the other thing. I even had those articles. I had the outstanding column even before I quote unquote burned the bridges in 2018 and went all in. It was one of those hooks in the water that I was dragging, just didn't have a lot of intentionality and focus. Now it's a monthly column and it's consistently not only provided value to the readership, but it provides one more avenue for people to find us. We could go probably for hours about (laughs) how that works. I I do a monthly thing now for financial planning, probably be out by the time we is become a media company. I mean, understand that we all have the ability in our pocket to have a TV station, a radio station. You know, I've seen pictures of all the technology from the 80s, like all the different things. It was this whole room full of stuff that now is replaced by our cell phone. And the interesting thing is, and again, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. You don't even have to write the article. No. You don't even have to write it. But what you do have to do is do the work. But I want folks who are listening to understand that when you do the work and when it works, like in your case, you're now getting monthly advertising directly to your target market that costs you nothing. So you have a podcast that I'm sure that you don't produce it yourself. So you have some cost in that. But being a member and contributing where you can to that Facebook group, these are not big investments. No. And so it does take a little work. It mostly takes a little bit of intentionality and thought. And then just do the homework with the media. What I have found, my wife spent 12 years in TV, is they need content. I did an entire podcast 18 months ago or so with Michael Kitsis on the power of compounding content. If you're listening to this and you hadn't heard that one, definitely another one to check out. But it's one of those things that do the work. Check it out. Just make it easy for them because they already need it. They need it. Yeah. But you have to make it easy for them because everybody's looking. Yeah. Be empathetic to their situation. Put yourself in their situation. If I'd like to write for your publication, are you looking for any uh, guest contributors? Question mark. Delete. I have no frame of reference, but if I get an email that says, I'd like to produce content and, 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 and write all the things that I talked about, it may not be the right thing, right? But at least I know from, I'm saying I now as a one submitting to get published, I did everything that I could to make them informed about whether I was going to be a good fit. It wasn't, oh, gee, I wonder if they like me. It's like, okay, if not, then there's clearly a misalignment and that's okay. But if they do like you, if there's even a remote sense of that, I can't think of an easier way to get into a publication because they are looking for exactly that chip. They're looking for content. Spend an hour a week sending out those kinds of pitches or whatever, and just commit to doing it for a year, an hour a week for a year, 52 hours. And my bet would be if anybody does that in a year from now, you don't get any response and you're still listening to this podcast, which might be questionable at that point, right? I'd be shocked. Let me know. I'll send you something. We'll work it out. (laughs) The biggest part is, I'm assuming, Adam, that part of things didn't happen overnight. It wasn't a one-shot deal. You you have to stay after that a little bit, but it's definitely, definitely worth it in the end because it's a ton of free exposure that is literally directly to the heart of the people that you want to talk to. It is a long game. Having said that, I will say the podcast had a lot more success early on than I anticipated. I went to the podcast thinking that, okay, just like you had said, the long game. Going into it, managing those expectations, I was pleasantly surprised off of the traction that we got so early on 
with the podcast. And I think it just comes down to, I found my niche. I found my audience, right? It's not going to appeal to 99.98% of the general population, but for the 0.0001% that find it, if you even remotely resonate it with it, you know, you're in the right place. And so the barrier to entry, the barrier of alignment of fit in my audience compared to anybody else with a generalist podcast, there's alignment there. They know that they're in the right place. What's interesting, Ben Brandt, who's a good friend of mine and, and produces the Retirement Starts Today radio, he has exponentially more downloads per episode than I do. But I always joke with him, it's David and Goliath, because I get more triage calls. I get more prospects from mine relative to downloads than what he does. Sorry, Ben. Ben's in a different place right now with his practice. He's trying to figure out what to do with like It's on a per download relation to, you know, Ben still gets a lot of great flow from the podcast there. But my point is I only average hundreds of downloads per episode of the podcast, and I'm still bursting at the seams with relationships. So don't think that you have to create a podcast or write or do videos or whatever, and that you need to get tens of thousands of downloads to have a massive impact. Become an inch wide a mile deep, become a sniper instead of a shotgun, and you can still have a massive impact on the niche audience that you're trying to attract. No doubt. I think you nailed that. It is really just a matter of picking your lane choosing how you're going to amplify your message. For me, I don't track the numbers. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast. I know that enough of them do that they reach out uh, for one reason or another. I have a retirement podcast that's relatively new. I don't look at the numbers because I just committed to keep doing it for a year before. Now, this one's been more than a year, but anyway, ultimately we can control our activities and that's a big part. So Adam, as we kind of wrap up, one of the things I like to ask is, you know, because we're an action-oriented podcast, if folks believe in what we're talking about, if there's one thing that they want to do to get started, what's one thing towards niching down, towards kind of refining that, what's one thing you'd suggest that they do to get started today? So I'll answer that in two parts. The first part is if you want a niche, but you don't have a niche and you're wondering what that should look like. My first suggestion would be to go through your client base, pick out your top 10 clients that you enjoy working with both from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint, right? You enjoy working with them qualitatively and quantitatively, they are a profitable relationship for you given the work that you're doing for them. And who are they? What do they do for a living, right? Kitsis did a post about like the different types of niches that you can have, right? Socio-demographic, professional, values-based, right? I'm not saying that the profession niche is the only way to do it. It is one of the ways, in my opinion, it's worked pretty well. So I'm not going to break something that's not broken, but go through that, go through your client base and say, all right, who are my top 10 clients that I absolutely love doing work for? I do good work for them. And if I could replicate them a hundred times, they'd be phenomenally happy clients and I'd be a phenomenally happy advisor. Go and do that first. That's what I did. The second, if you do have a niche and you're just wondering, how do I break into that? What's the first step to break into that? Take the pages out of my playbook. And this is where you could say, okay, what are you good at doing? What are your strengths? Look up Jim Collins' hedgehog concept, right? What are you the best in the world at doing? What drives your economic engine and what brings you joy? So for me, podcasting and teaching and writing are things that I love doing. So that's why I did the podcast. Once you do that, if you have your niche in mind and you pick the podcast, whatever that medium that might be, what I would also suggest, I know this is a couple of different action items, find your golden geese in that profession. What I mean by that is find the association, find the president of that association and interview that person and say, I'm looking at breaking into this niche. Carl Richards did a great breakdown on how to do this. 
he's got a blog post out there, I think, about how you can interview COIs or interview the, like the movers and shakers of a niche of a profession and understand, right? Again, quoting Carl, people don't care about your solutions. They care about their problems. And so understand the problems that you're trying to solve that you can solve of that niche and then create the content around that. So my wife always says, why do you answer in 20 words what you could say in four? And it's like, well, I got a lot to say. So hopefully that long answer was a succinct answer to the question. Absolutely. And listen, we wouldn't be podcasters if we didn't like to talk. <laughs> so, you know, definitely understood. Well, Adam, I've learned a lot, man. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Chip. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the advisory community as well. It's been a pleasure and a blast. Same here. See you soon, brother. See you soon, Chip. Thanks. To download what we believe is the single most important marketing, selling, and positioning tool for your practice, go to MaximumAdvisor.com slash scorecard now. Join the conversation in our private Maximum Advisor Facebook group. And subscribe to this show anywhere you listen to podcasts or at MaximumAdvisor.com.